Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. As is something of a tradition for us at this point when Apple has a big launch event, we are recording the same day uh, our first impressions and doing a deep dive on everything that Apple announced. So I attended the event in person this morning. Um, I'm still in Silicon Valley while recording this. Aaron uh, watched most of it remotely. And so we'll be talking about what was announced today. Inevitably, there'll be some details that we'll miss because uh, there is just simply so much announced and we've only had so much time to read through all the various materials that Apple's put out there. So apologies if we miss something that you have spotted already and we don't end up covering it, but no doubt we'll have more to cover over the next few weeks as we get closer to launch for some of these devices. Uh, as we've done previously with these events, I think we'll largely go in order uh, in which the keynote proceeded. So we'll talk about the same things in the same order. I think briefly, maybe up front, we'll talk a little bit about surprises and leaks um, by way of context, and then we'll kind of go through things in order and maybe have some thoughts to wrap up at the end as well. So, Aaron, do you want to sort of mention some of what we were talking about before we started recording in terms of surprises or lack thereof? That I can't remember a keynote um, pretty much ever that had so many of the details uh, leaked ahead of time. I mean, all the way down to the Animoji stuff, the 9 to 5 Mac and Mac rumors. Um spotted in the golden master that that rogue employee leaked um yeah i don't know I, so <clears throat> for me the only i mean you know i followed the coverage all leading up to it and for me the only thing that was like genuinely surprising i guess there were two things one was the um was the studio lighting feature and uh, mm -hmm. basically you know riffing on the what portrait mode can do i thought that was really cool we'll get to that i guess but and then the the wireless charging case for AirPods, and those two things are pretty small potatoes. I mean, they're neat, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but they were about the only details I can think of that there wasn't at least a pretty good inkling of ahead of time, if not full details. Right, right, yeah. No, it, and it was a shame because I think you know, as of a week ago, we knew a fair amount certainly about the physical design of the iPhone, largely through Apple's own fault of publishing the HomePod firmware with a lot of details about iOS 11 in it. Right. And then, of course, there was, as you mentioned, this sort of rogue employee, we assume, who leaked the URLs for the, the Golden Master for iOS 11. Um, you know, as a result of those things, I think it really did leak a lot of the additional details that, that could have been surprises. And, and it's a shame. I, I think the event's always a lot more interesting if you're genuinely surprised by some of this stuff. But in the event that we knew a lot of the details ahead of time, there were a few details like price and exact availability dates that were still outstanding. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing is no matter what leaks ahead of time, you have none of the marketing, none of the pitch, none of yeah. the positioning, you know. And so that was one of the interesting elements that, of course, hadn't leaked ahead of time because it's really about words rather than about specs or anything like that. So that's something we'll talk about, especially in relation to the iPhone. Um, but a lot of stuff certainly was out there. And so we'll kind of talk about some of that as we go through. Well, let's kick off and talk about things in the order in which they happened. And um, the event started with the sort of unusual moment where the announcer said, everybody in the auditorium, please close your laptop screens, turn off other screens and so on. And then we basically sat in the dark while we listened to the voice of Steve Jobs uh, as sort of recorded some time ago, talking about what uh, Apple thinks of as sort of making a contribution in the world, which is creating great products ultimately uh, by way of introduction to the event. And of course, the context was that we're in the Steve Jobs Theater uh, at the new Apple Park campus, this sort of famous spaceship campus. And uh, and so we went from that moment into 
sort of a discussion of the campus and Steve Jobs' role in uh, creating uh, the idea for the new campus and so on and everything that's followed that since then. Uh, and so I kind of want to talk briefly about Steve Jobs and sort of that context and then sort of broaden out the discussion into Apple Park. But Aaron, did you hear that part and kind of what did you make of that? Uh, I thought it was nice. It um, felt a little weird only because I think Steve Jobs made, before he passed, made a big deal out of not being um, lionized that way, right. you know, that he didn't want that he didn't want Apple to be sort of beholden to what he would have done. Mm, kind of a, yeah. a rationale, but that said, I don't think they violated that 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 request by by paying tribute to him. Um, and, and I mean, let's just be honest; he's a man who deserves a tribute, you know, even if it's just a brief one at the start of a keynote, which is <clears throat> the iconic Steve Jobs moment, anyway. Uh, and like you said, the theater's named after him. It's the inaugural keynote, you know, and that there are many more to come there. I thought it was. I thought it was nice. I, you know, it made me. It made me realize. And obviously, you know, I, it's not that I ever knew him or anything, but it made me nostalgic for the days when he was leading Apple. They were just, they were really, kind of thrilling and amazing. And I don't know that Apple would be all that much different if he were still around and in charge mm -hmm. today, um, because so much of the company that he built is just sort of doing what he had built it to do. <clears throat> but. Um, I, and I'm not getting choked up. I just have been teaching today, <laughs> so I'm using <laughs> my voice. Anyway, <laughs> no, but I, but you know, it's like he he did remarkable things, and it was fun to reflect on on a pretty amazing life, even if just yeah. for a moment. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, and Tim, you know, you weren't getting choked up just now, but it felt like Timmy Cook was a little bit. Yeah, he, he did. A little emotional at one point. You could kind of hear his voice breaking a little bit. And you know, there was no getting away from the imagery of having Tim Cook who, you know, in fairness, has moved forward enormously in terms of his stage presence, but then being literally overshadowed by these enormous images of Steve Jobs, who's just such an imposing figure, even just in a photograph, just yeah. this intensity that's there, sort of the presence. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, it felt, felt very appropriate to sort of bear, uh, sort of uh, to pay tribute to him in that way. Um, well, and actually, Apple just one other comment yeah. on that. And, and also, even if it was even just the tiniest bit excessive, uh, you know, the people at Apple deserve the opportunity to do that just for their own reasons. I, you know, I, they're, they're entitled to paying tribute to Steve, even if, mm. even if, I don't know, maybe somebody found it, I don't know, I don't know, distasteful or out of touch or whatever. Um, you know, these are like Tim Cook was, I, you know, he doesn't have many relationships in his life that, that, that equal the, the significance and sort of life-changing nature of the relationship he had with Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure it's a short list of people that mm -hmm. sort of are on that level of how much his life has changed because of that connection. And yeah. so, you know, at the very least, you just sort of say, yeah, you deserve a chance to do this. Right, right. I'm, so, I'm sure it was cathartic to some extent as well. Yeah. Um, that then kind of led into a discussion of Apple Park and the new campus and you know, just from my own experience today, it's a very different experience from showing up at the old Apple campus, which is, you know, very much kind of showing up at a traditional sort of front door for a campus situation, kind of walk through a big atrium and into this sort of open courtyard area at Infinite Loop, uh, and then get ushered eventually into the sort of town hall there, which is a fairly small, definitely intimate sort of space. 
Um, you know, the experience today was parking in this massive parking garage where uh, I think all the visitors were three floors below ground uh, and then walking uh, to a registration area and then walking along a sort of a winding path through very recently planted trees and bushes and things like that. Uh, very definite smell of mulch. Um, and towards the Steve Jobs Theatre building where there's sort of this glass, round glass area above ground and then you go down into where the auditorium and the demo area and so on are. Um, you know, you really don't get a sense of the scale of Apple Park until you see it in person. And yesterday I went for a hike up in the foothills in Cupertino and got to sort of one of the higher points around here. And as I was looking down, you can see the campus from up there. And it's very striking and very different and very large compared to everything else that's around. You know, there's a sea of office buildings in this area. But, um, you know, the spaceship campus is is very distinct, very much bigger than anything else out there. It really stands out. And then as you approach it by car, it doesn't seem quite so imposing because of the sort of berms and things around the outside of the, um, the plot of land on which it is. It's sort of... It uh, feels like it's sunk into the ground almost if you look at it from the streets outside. But then you get onto the campus itself and it really is this very big, imposing structure, really much bigger than... I, I've never been to the Pentagon in person, but I have to assume it's sort of somewhat similar to that in terms of the sheer sort of size and scale of it. But it's a beautiful place. It really does feel like a park, uh, very green, uh, even if a lot of the greenery is very recently planted. But, um, you know, very different feel from certainly any other Apple event or any other sort of corporate event I've been to. And, um, the auditorium in the Steve Jobs Theatre is very similar in feel to the town hall on the Infinite Loop campus, uh, but bigger, but without feeling enormous. You know, it could have just felt big and sort of, um, you know, like the new Yankee Stadium or something very sort of concrete and anonymous. And it doesn't feel that way at all. It still feels quite intimate. The design is very similar. The feel is very similar. There's just more of it. And I think they've done quite a nice job there. Obviously, very high-end materials that's been covered quite a bit in the last few weeks in the press. But... You know, really nice experience to be in there. Uh, felt like you were close to the stage in pretty much any seat that you were in um, and feels like, you know, gonna, what's going to be a great location for lots of product reveals in the years to come. Talk about the demo area a little bit because that's one of the things. I saw a lot of the theater pictures and the entrance pictures show up on mm. on Twitter, but I haven't had a chance to really get a sense of what the demo area is like because I know there's a big question as to how they would conceal everything and you know because mm -hmm. you walk past the demo area right to get to the theater from right. the, from what i've understood so talk about the demo area a little bit yeah and they somehow had it shut off from um where we came in so we come down these staircases that sort of wrap around inside the outer walls of the the circular area at the top and down into the area where the auditorium is and there was nothing visible at that point and i i wasn't paying a lot of attention at that point but it did it Somehow they have some kind of walls that wall that off, or or they built it all while we were in the auditorium. I don't know, but uh, it wasn't there wasn't anything visible there. But we basically went past that area as we came in, and then as we came back out again, it was all opened up. Um, and what I'd hoped was this was a a really big area with plenty of room for the hundreds of people that had come to see this stuff. In reality, it was just as crowded, if not more so, uh, relative to every other recent Apple uh, unveiling event that I've been to. It was very, very hard to get anywhere close to any of the interesting stuff for quite some time. And even an hour later, I took a picture of it and it looked very similar to what it looked like right when we first walked in with just people everywhere, uh, sort of thronging the most interesting stuff, especially the iPhone X. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a clever setup and clearly designed very much with this kind of an event in mind. Um, but even so, it's just, I think the sheer number of people that um, Apple now has at these events means uh, it's always going to be somewhat that way, especially since everybody's trying to do video and they're just video cameras everywhere. 
It'll be interesting to see how they cope with that in the years to come. I'm yeah, sure they learned yeah, a ton from so. today. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, well, they, they next talked about retail, so let's us talk briefly about retail as well. And this is where uh, Angela Ahrens came on stage to talk about retail. And this is mostly a recap of stuff that's been announced previously. A lot of focus on the Today at Apple program that was launched over the summer um, around the time that Apple was getting to 500 total retail stores. Uh, and this is... Uh, sort of the evolution of a lot of programs that have been happening at Apple already in the retail stores, which is a lot of experiential stuff, a lot of training type stuff, but less one-on-one, more group-based, bringing in local artists, having people do training on things, um, and a particularly good fit for around 100 of the 500 stores that are being set up in a new way uh, with new areas for learning and various other things, um, while the other 400 stores are more in the sort of traditional mold. They also use it as a chance to talk about several really iconic new stores or revamps of existing stores that they're building. Um, I think this is the first time we've seen Angela Ahrens on stage, at least for any significant amount of time. She was also the only female presenter today. This is something that Apple's been repeatedly sort of harangued over over the last few years is the fact that it's a very male-dominated keynote experience. There have been one or two keynotes where they've brought uh, product managers and people like that to do demos, uh, but today every demo was also... uh, run by a man and uh, the only other woman who appeared anywhere in the whole thing was uh, a product in, uh, product person from the Apple Watch team um, who was out on a paddleboard in the middle of a lake somewhere and let's be honest she the had the Apple coolest part of the demo to do so <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly a fun element we can talk yeah, about that awesome. minute, but, but yeah it's, it's one of those things so it was good to see Angela Aarons on stage Lisa Jackson the head of the sort of environmental initiatives at Apple is had a similar role in the past of, of trying to provide some diversity to uh, the on-stage presence, but it was it was pretty much all the the top senior executives, which are, are, it's a very male-dominated group. And you go down a, a level and look at the VP level at Apple, and a half of those are now women. But at that very highest level, it's still just a couple, um, and uh, and and that's very noticeable during these keynotes always. But uh, nothing hugely new from the retail perspective. Just really a recap of what's been going on over the last few months. Yeah, and I, I don't know, and so I, I'll be honest, I got a little distracted as I was watching the live stream during that part, only because each time I tuned in, I didn't, I wasn't hearing a lot of new stuff. I, I just will comment really quickly, the the Village Square thing, I, I, there's one thing about it that bugs me, and in fact, I was just kind of thinking it through and figuring it out just now as we were, as we were talking about her presentation. Um, it, it, it only really works in dense urban areas. Because a lot of people experience Apple stores by driving to a shopping mall and parking in a stadium, in a football field sized parking lot, and then, mm-hmm. you know, navigating through groups of teenagers and eventually getting to the Apple store in the midst of, you know, all these really high end expensive shops. I, I realize that's not how a lot of people experience Apple stores because they mm-hmm. are, you know, living in a city and it's sort of maybe on their walk to the subway or, or you know, something like that. But it, it's a model that just feels a little strained for less densely populated areas where, you know, mm-hmm. you're usually driving where you're going kind of a thing. And I'm not sure how I feel about that because I worry that the, the concept will um, kind of miss the boat for a lot of Apple customers just mm-hmm. for that reason because I don't, I don't drive to a mall parking lot to have a Village Square experience. So yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess the town square or town square, I guess that's what they call it. Yeah, is, is kind of this is a gathering place for for a town or whatever. Whereas maybe the way they're thinking of it is, it's not just a place to shop, but it's a place to sort of spend time and to 
decompress potentially to sit down to sort of enjoy yeah. being in a space for a while I think that's kind of what they're aiming for but you're right it's it's not necessarily a destination in that sense it, it's yeah doesn't necessarily fit with how a lot of people experience the Apple store today but I guess the, the greater point is it's about experiences not just about trying to sell you something so it's about coming in and learning something coming connecting with a local community um, because there are people doing presentations and, and things like that. There's the photo walks and things like that. that yeah, but but hey, shopping malls are a weird spot now that, you know, mm-hmm. they're not really like town yeah. squares. They're not. I mean, yeah. you know, no, you're, right. you're going there for back-to-school shopping, mm-hmm. you know, um, because you need a new pair of running shoes. Um, it's not a daily experience, at least for no. most people. And, no, and town squares are. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I feel like it's a metaphor that's yeah. just kind of... I bet it. I bet it works pretty well in urban areas where a lot of foot traffic, um, you know, where where most of the Apple Store traffic is foot traffic. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I just feel like it kind of misses something in uh, right. in places like Utah, for example. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's move on from retail to talk about the actual products that were announced. And and we've got Apple Watch. We've got Apple TV. And we've got two sets of iPhones to talk about as well. So we'll kick things off with the Apple Watch. Um, most noticeable thing here Series 3 watches obviously new hardware with cellular cellular connectivity being the main new feature that was talked about there is some other stuff in there too that's also worth discussing Um, but you know from the intro video onwards just a further deepening of this focus on wellness and fitness and health um, sort of almost pretending like all the app stuff never happened um, you know, really very focused both in the Series 2 announcements and especially in today's Series 3 announcements on the fitness and, and, and health and wellness type stuff. Um, you know, this whole promotional video, with, which was really well done, frankly, of yeah, a lot of customers kind of reading out their letters to Tim Cook and so on, uh, talking about all the things they love about it, this enormous diversity within that focus on fitness and wellness, everything from a, a little girl who had diabetes to a, a 99-year-old woman who you know travels a lot and uses her apple watch and it does she likes it because it doesn't make her feel old and you know great sort of uh, great filmmaking frankly without that intro video but very clear focus as well yeah yeah no i thought that was I, I think that was my favorite video spot of the entire keynote um simply because it reflected what apple's ethic is all about when it comes to its products mm-hmm. right that it's yeah. sort of like fitting meaningfully into people's lives mm-hmm. no matter who that person is and uh and i think that delivered on that on that value or that or that principle better than anything else that i remember seeing in a while actually i think the last Mm -hmm. time i saw something that i felt like really kind of got it was years ago when they did a video on all the different developers around the world you know and they were talking and they like featured like you know an 80 year old japanese woman and a you know you know an eight-year-old girl and like I felt like that was another one that really sort of got it. Like, look, this uh, this these products have broad reach and appeal, but but because they have specific important meaning in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it is when Apple lets its customers speak for it that it often does the best job with yep. it. Because yeah. you know Apple is extremely good at producing highly polished marketing videos that are about its executives, especially Johnny Ive, talking about fancy new products and design and everything else and. Well, you learn to dismiss that. You're you're sort of cynical about it because they are so good at it, and there's sort of a formula and all the rest of it. And you expect there to be, you know, amazing visuals and and you know, Johnny or somebody else doing the voiceover or, or music or whatever. 
Um, and I think you know what what made this work was it was clearly based on genuine letters from real customers. And as you say, with developers, it was again based on you know a different set of customers, developers in this case rather than end users. Yeah. But um, you know, telling their stories and and that connects back to the sort of message about Steve Jobs and the sort of voiceover from him right at the beginning of the event about you know really making a difference in people's lives. Um, getting to the actual sort of heart of the uh, watch stuff, and no pun intended, but actually heart um, is a good word to talk about because uh, there's some uh, stuff that's pushing beyond just fitness into health directly and, and three new sort of things around measuring heart rate. And, and so one of them is just sort of in the context of fitness, measuring resting heart rate and recovery uh, and that kind of stuff for, from a fitness perspective. But there are a couple of other things as well where sort of notifications now if you have an elevated heart rate when you don't seem to be exercising, it's probably a sign of trouble, and the watch can now notify you when that's the case. And then uh, there's this heart study going on uh, with Stanford um, to sort of measure uh, various things to detect arrhythmia, to detect atrial fibrillation, um, and they've been working with the FDA to kind of approve the Apple Watch in that sense as a diagnostic device, I guess. Um, and so later this year, there's gonna be an app in the App Store that will allow people to participate in this Apple Heart study. So really, again, pushing beyond fitness, but I think it's staying within that broader domain of health and wellness and fitness. You know, this is, <laughs> I hesitate to use the term, this is a kind of a killer app, right? Yeah. <laughs> the opposite of that, I guess, right? A life-saving app. A life-saver app. Yeah, yeah. but I, I think, um, you know, this this is the sort of argument that makes it, um, makes the Apple Watch a lot more compelling for a lot of people you know, if you're if you're at risk, why would you not have one? Becomes the question, rather right. than why why would you? Um, because that alone, for you know, for for certain people that might have a genetic predisposition to heart disease, for example, I, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I can only imagine the value in early detection of stuff like that is immense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah I, so I think that's super exciting. And yeah, uh, Steve, uh, sorry, um, Tim Cook gave an interview to Adam Lashinsky at Fortune that uh, came out. Was it yesterday? Is it or, or over the weekend? And yeah, Adam asked him about about health and and apples and the direction apples moving with health and if they see a business opportunity there. And you know, he Tim Cook very much described it as a very long term play. Because mm -hmm. health is a slow play. I mean, it just is. You have yes. to. It takes a ton of investment and a ton of time. Mm -hmm. um, these are the sorts of things that come out of all that effort, though. And the idea that 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 Apple watches in the foreseeable future c could be saving a meaningful number of lives is kind of jaw dropping when you really think about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it could be huge value even for people who don't know they have a problem. I mean, the notification. Yeah your heart rate's elevated, for example. And there have been the odd story about people uh, finding themselves in those situations. And it was one in that video that we were talking about just now where people have discovered things that they didn't even know they had an issue with. But as you say, people who already know they're at risk for some of these conditions obviously can benefit greatly from, from tracking them more proactively. And Apple talked about how the Apple Watch is now the most used heart rate monitor out there, basically. It's the, the one with the biggest numbers out there. And that obviously makes it quite powerful and from a diagnostic perspective yeah um from a hardware perspective though the big new feature is cellular connectivity and um, that's limited to a certain number of carriers around the world so far including the four major u.s carriers um, and the key things is it shares a number with your phone so that you can get calls and messages and so on at your phone number 
on your watch even when you've left your phone at home there's some clever stuff in there about using the best connectivity available so it'll connect to your phone if your phone's available it'll connect to wi-fi if your phone is not within range but you're at home and that's the best network available and then if you're out and about it will just use cellular lte and so on um, and so, you know, quite clever in that sense. Lots of stuff on stage about miniaturization, about an eSIM rather than a physical SIM, about squeezing uh, the antenna into the display rather than having the separate uh, display and basically keeping the size almost exactly the same as it has been before. That in and of itself is an enormous achievement. And yeah. that it showed considerable restraint by Apple not to put up pictures of competing LTE-based smartwatches <laughs> because it's exactly what Steve Jobs did when the iPhone launched and showed sort of the Palm Trio and various other phones just to show the contrast and it would have been very tempting I would have thought to do that because there are these enormous LTE enabled smartwatches out there from various competitors nobody's really done an Apple watch sized uh, smartwatch that well hardly anybody's done an Apple watch sized smartwatch apart from Apple period but especially the LTE based ones tend to be absolutely enormous and what Apple's done is squeeze it not just into the 42 millimeter, but the 38 millimeter watch as well. Um, and without really increasing the size at all. I mean, I think a quarter of a millimeter additional uh, width in the back. Um, so yeah, very impressive in that sense. Um, to me, and we've talked about this a little bit before, I probably won't get a lot of additional value out of it. I think um, my wife might get a bit more value out of it because she'll sometimes leave her phone in one part of the house and have her watch with her in another part of the house. So being able to get notifications still in that circumstance would be useful for her. Clearly, people who go out running uh, yeah. are the people who are going to benefit the most from this. That's not me. And when I go out walking, I do take my phone with me for various reasons. But um, for runners, this is going to be a huge big deal. And, and potentially for people to go to the beach in Apple's parlance. I mean, clearly, they're very conditioned by where Apple is based. Most people in the U.S. aren't within easy access to a beach. But... Uh, Clearly, for people in California, that is a big deal, and that's a use case as well. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I, I still don't own an Apple Watch. I borrowed one from you. We talked about that last year and kind of went through that for a couple of weeks. And the LTE thing might push me, it's definitely pushed me a lot closer to getting one. Um, I, I like the idea of running or hiking, and, and the main reason I bring my phone is for emergencies. Um, you know, I, I would run with a watch if it wasn't for the fact that it, it would be impossible to contact anybody. And now LTE <clears throat> makes that available, which is pretty great. Although I wonder if I'd still even then bring my phone only because, um, you know, we live in Utah, which is a beautiful place and it's really easy to go to gorgeous trails. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I like having my phone to take pictures. And so that's yeah. still missing. And I think two years ago or whatever, I predicted there'd be a camera on the watch someday, but mm -hmm. today is not that day. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe I'll right. hold out or maybe I'll yeah, finally yeah. make the jump this time. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, other interesting stuff like uh, streaming music, although for some reason that's not coming until next month, even though you can buy the watch later this month. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a licensing issue or something else, but for now it's a very simplified version of, of the app, of Apple Music app on the Apple Watch. and but you'll be able to stream all 40 million songs coming next month. A lot of other stuff that was run through very quickly, but new chips uh, and altimeter, so for better measuring uh, elevation gains and stuff like that, if you're hiking, for example. Um, new dual-core processor, uh, which makes everything quicker, but also allows Siri to talk back to you, apparently. Uh, this was glossed over extremely quickly, but some kind of new API or other tools for developers who are making skiing and snowboarding apps. Presumably that ties into the altimeter as well for measuring elevation gained or lost. Um, but you know, lots of other really clever stuff. It feels like even as Apple is focusing increasingly on fitness and health and so on, 
um, they're building the foundation to get back into apps. I mean, the, the processor yeah. improvements and stuff like that are going to make apps perform much faster. Having LTE in there and having better Wi-Fi support in there so it can be independent of the phone, all of these are necessary components for making apps a better experience. And so they're not talking about that now in the way that they were even last year still. Um, but it feels like what we're seeing is a foundation being laid for an eventual return to apps as a sort of secondary focus for the watch. Yeah, and probably augmented, or not probably, but potentially augmented by other devices. I mean, there have been rumors for a while that Apple's get looking into glasses. They've got AirPods now. Um, you can imagine a, an iPhone replacement that consists of glasses, AirPods, and a watch, right, that does a lot of the things that an iPhone can do, and that's where apps yeah. would become meaningful again, primarily because if they, if they can do the glasses thing and pull it off and... There's a lot, uh, there's a lot of ground there still to cover before they get to that point, but that solves the screen problem, which is the major sort of limitation on for apps on the watch. It's just it's always going to be a screen about that size, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the Apple TV quickly. That was the second sort of big announcement um, from a product perspective, and this one was widely anticipated as well. You know, to our point at the beginning about a few surprises, this, it was rumored ahead of time Apple would be doing 4K support, which indeed it is, uh, as well as HDR, which is about sort of color gamut and various other things. Uh, that required getting studios on board, and there was a number of studios whose logos were flashed up. I didn't see Disney's logo there, and I haven't seen any coverage of this, but my guess is Disney was a holdout in the negotiations over price because if you own an HD video through Apple today, you'll be able to upgrade it for free to 4K HDR. And I'm guessing Disney didn't want to enable that. And there were, there were some stories in the news a couple of weeks ago about negotiations between Apple and the studios over pricing for 4K. So that may have been a sticking point there. Um, also enhancements to tvOS and uh, better support for live sports, better support for live news. Uh, and various other things. And again, Apple just kind of deepening its approach, for now at least, of being an aggregator of other people's TV experiences, making it easier to find all of those experiences from the TV app on the Apple TV, using Siri potentially to find those things and tune into them as well. So uh, offering a front end for this increasingly fragmented world of TV apps. And then a big sort of performance boost from the Apple TV too. Obviously, some of that's aimed at 4K and HDR, but potentially could be a boost for games, which, you know, if the Apple Watch has steadily gone from being about apps and notifications and fitness to being focused on fitness, the Apple TV has gone from being about TV and games to being focused on TV. And yet, in somewhat the same way, they're building a foundation for doing something more again, potentially with games in future as well. Demo was a little weird to me. It looked like a beautiful game. And um, yeah. yeah, I'll definitely check it out when it eventually launches. But um, it felt weird because they didn't do anything to the remote. And the remote is, I think, easily everybody's biggest complaint about the Apple TV. There are some things that are great about it, and really the truth is for basic use, it's fine. I mean, it does what it needs to do. But, yeah. but they have this weird problem of the fact that you need a better controller to play games, but that's something you have to buy separately. And, <clears throat> and so they're not gonna, Apple's not going to go out of its way to make a big deal out of that kind of a thing. That, like, there's no way they would have done, done a demo on stage you know, of a game that required a game controller. Um, right. And <clears throat> as long as that's true, it's always going to struggle as a gaming platform because mm -hmm. it, you know, they sort of want it to be one, but not at the same time. And so the game controller is a really highly, like this, you know, this sort of like, like D-pad joystick game controller thing is 
a highly refined, highly tested input device that, you know, is, it's hard to imagine going anywhere for a really long time. And, and <clears throat> until one of those comes with the Apple TV or they, or they pull some other, you know, user experience trick out of their hat, it's, it's always going to struggle as a gaming platform. It'll just be casual right. gaming, which can be big, and but it's just it's big on mobile screens, not on TV screens. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and the focus is clearly on TV. I mean, they showed a game demo on stage, as you said. I think it was a Chinese developer, which presumably sort of helping to appeal to the Chinese market, increasing the important market for Apple. But yeah, it was mostly about TV. The fact that Eddie Q was the one presenting when he doesn't own the hardware product, he owns yeah. the, the, the store, the content store and so on. I mean, this is clearly what that was about. So it was kind of interesting. Um, well, let's move on to talking about the iPhones. And, um, you know, the first, I think, 53 minutes of the event were about those other things. And then the second hour basically was about iPhones. And I think it's an interesting thought experiment to go through to think about, OK, if we hadn't had all the rumors over the last few months and Apple had just announced the iPhone 8, an eight plus kind of what would that have been like as an announcement and so it's worth thinking about kind of what's in the iPhone 8 relative to the iPhone 7 You've got a, a different hardware design basic same form factor but glass back instead of uh, the back that we've had for the last several years so the metal sort of back um, you've got true tone displays you've got more durable glass you've got the outer stereo speakers you've got the a11 bionic with everything that enables improved cameras with optical image stabilization on both lenses and the plus uh, other camera improvements, new IPS, ISP, uh, you've got a dedicated GPU, Apple Design to support better graphics performance, you've got portrait lighting in beta, you've got better video capture, you've got AR support and so on, and you've got wireless charging. So forget about the iPhone 10 for a minute, that's this year's iPhone announcement, it's the new iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. It's a pretty significant set of announcements, and I think if you compare yeah. it to last year's iPhone 7, you know, that by itself would have been a really, you know, not exactly a home run necessarily, but certainly a good double or triple, um, you know, and certainly comparable to last year's announcements. Arguably, there's more there than there was last year. And I think that's probably the way Apple wants us to think about the iPhone 8. And that's why they went from 7 to 8 rather than 7S um, was because they wanted to avoid the sense this was another incremental change, especially in the context of the iPhone 10 that they would also announce. And if you look at it in those terms, it's, it's a compelling set of upgrades. If the iPhone 10 didn't exist, lots of people would be wanting to go out and buy an iPhone 8 or an 8 Plus. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's how Apple wanted people to think about it. It's clearly how they framed it by talking about all of this before they got to the iPhone 10 and kind of having that as the one more thing. Um, and if you look at the sort of positioning and the press releases and stuff around these things, iPhone 8 is described as the next generation and then iPhone 10 is described as the future. Um, and so that's the positioning, and we should talk about that a little bit more. But kind of what was your reaction to the iPhone 8 uh, phones? Yeah, I, I resonate with everything you said. I think the one thing that would have sort of hung out there is the bezel-like thing, I, the, the, the size of the bezels relative to the screen size. You would have had a bunch of commentary really hung up on that, which is weird because it sort of misses the point of all the other enhancements, which really are awesome in particular to the cameras. I mean, that you know, these it's it's amazing how much progress they make on the cameras every year because it's getting harder and harder to make progress um because the cameras are already so good. And so um yeah, I I guess, you know, I I think that would have been the one thing that you would have had a lot of commentary about, but altogether, you're right, it, it it's a much better phone than last year's. The 8 is a much better phone than the 7. And uh 
<clears throat> and I think we haven't even really scratched the surface yet as as iOS 11 ships and AR comes out and all those sorts of things that the iPhone 8 will do better. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was the demo they had. I mean, they didn't really demo much on the iPhone 8, but AR was one thing they did demo. Right. I mean, they had to, again, um, you know, third party developer come up and show off their AR based game. And we've obviously seen lots of interesting AR stuff over the last few months. And that's not exclusive to the new phones. It's some of it's improved by some of the technology in the new phones. But, uh, but yeah, I, you know, as I would say, a fairly compelling set of announcements. Interesting, subtle shift in pricing. So it's going from six forty nine to six ninety nine for the eight, and then from seven sixty nine to seven ninety nine for the plus. Um, so a boost in, in pricing there as well. So you know, between that and the iPhone ten coming out um, in October November, um, you know, we're going to see a big bump in ASPs if nothing else. Um, yeah. But uh, let's talk about the iPhone ten, and then we can kind of come come back and talk about the whole thing as well. The iPhone ten, obviously the headline out of this event and as i say it's a fun thought experiment to think about if it was just the iphone 8 yeah it wasn't and with the iphone 10 there the big question was kind of what the positioning would be between the two what the naming would be and what that would signify uh, the iphone x name had leaked over the last few days and there was a big discussion about did that was it going to be pronounced x was it going to be pronounced 10 there's a certain risk in having an 8 and a 10 out there at the same time it very transparently means the 10 is two generations ahead by implication of the eight makes you wonder what next year's phone will be called. Um, will we get nine or 11 or will we get something <laughs> else? Um, yeah. So all sorts of questions about that, but you know, clearly you've got all these sort of enhancements made in the iPhone eight plus plus plus. So, you know, OLED uh, display rather than LCD display, lots of stuff about materials in there. Um, obviously with the 3d sensing technology and everything else that goes to make face ID work, and then the way that that sort of those depth cameras are used to then do other clever things like an emoji and various other bits and pieces, um, and then the new user interface, which is necessary because of the removal of the home button and everything else. Um, you know, this is clearly the best iPhone out there. There's no doubt about that. And um, you know, Apple talked about it as the future of the smartphone. Certainly, very on trend with things like the shrinking bezels and so on, and, and moving away from fingerprint unlock towards sort of facial recognition and so on but also significantly moving that market forward i mean you've got the samsung phones from this year out there with face unlock that's very insecure iris based unlock that's much more secure but also foolable and um it's kind of a pain in the neck to use to be honest because you have to get your irises in these two very small circles on the <laughs> front of the phone and uh, you know face unlock seems to be a lot more flexible you can hold the phone a lot more different angles and it'll still capture your face and so on and more importantly, very, very secure. And that was the big question was, you know, Touch ID, as they sort of suggested today, has been the gold standard for the combination of security, usability, and speed. And they had to match or exceed all of those things. And um, that meant it had to work in any lighting conditions. Uh, it had to work very quickly, but it still had to be super secure. And that's very, very hard to pull off, as Samsung's demonstrated. And I think you know, based on what we saw demoed, and we have to wait for the reviews to come out to see how it actually works in practice, they seem to have cracked that. You know, they talked about numbers as far as the security side is concerned, um, demoed it briefly. There was a little hiccup with Craig Federighi demoing uh, the iPhone 10 face unlock with one device saying he had to put his passcode in first, switch to a different device, seemed to work fine. Certainly in the demo area, I saw somebody using it just to find it and have any glitches there. Um, but you know, that, that certainly seems very strong. Uh, and then the cameras and so on are all the same, basically, as in the iPhone 8 Plus. So in some ways, you know, there's a big step from the 7 to the 8, and then there's another big step from the 8 to the 10. 
um, with each kind of leaning on the generation before and, and everything that they they offer as well. Yeah, I the the face ID thing is amazing to me, and and the technology I guess has, the pieces have all been there for a little while. I mean, I think all the way back to the Xbox Connect, and the way it, you know sprays dots and tracks your motion and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the pieces have all been there. It's the way that they are all pull, pulled together here that is pretty amazing to me. You know, there are some features when Apple does them right, they truly feel magical. Touch ID for me actually wasn't that way the first time. It was the second generation of Touch ID where it got yeah. so fast that like even, <laughs> yeah, the slightest brush of your fingertip would unlock. That, that, mm-hmm. That's amazing to me. And, and, face ID, and Face ID looks like that, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, the, the amount of engineering that goes into doing that well is mind boggling to me. Yeah. No, absolutely, and it's it's very clever. I mean, the combination of, as you say, spraying infrared dots and then having an infrared camera that picks those up and detects your face and so on. And I saw somebody in the demo area training uh, an iPhone on his face, and you basically just kind of hold it up in front of your face and then move your face around in different directions for 10 seconds or something, and that trains it on your face, and that's it. So, you know, with Touch ID, you had to train every single finger or thumb that you wanted to use on it, which... You know, it could take a while because you had to kind of keep shifting the grip and all this kind of stuff. And actually, training this is a lot faster because you've only got one face, and uh, it actually captures that face very quickly. So that was interesting. I'm curious um, how um, biological twins will yes will fare with this. I wonder if they can open each yeah, other's yeah. phones. Yeah, I'm sure somebody's going to test that. Similar, but yeah. Oh, no doubt. No yeah. Doubt. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot. You know, as I said, they're very similar. And there was a joke about evil twins on, on stage. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but, you know, the reality is even quote-unquote identical twins actually look different. I'm guessing this is sophisticated enough to tell them apart. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting, too, to see, you know, that they released an emoji, which, you know, it's one of those things that's a nice little delighter. I think that's probably the best way to put it. It's not going to make anybody buy a phone because you can animate emoji based on how you move your face. But it's a great little delighter. It's going to be really fun to play with and works super well. Again, I saw this in the demo area working really well just as sort of it was demoed on stage. And... Um, you know, the, the point is that all the underlying technology is being exposed to developers as well. So, um, you know, Snapchat and some other apps are already taking advantage of some of the same technology to do masks and things like that. There's going to be lots of other stuff that comes out of this from a developer perspective as well. So should be some really fun stuff coming there. Yeah. And then you've got the fact that the selfie camera um, now does portrait mode selfies, including the portrait lighting. And that portrait lighting f- feature, I don't know that they spent a lot of time on that on stage, but it's really very clever. Um, and the fact that you can change the lighting after the fact and really very dramatically. It's yeah. not nearly as subtle as some other features. And, you know, when the, the Galaxy Note 8 from Samsung launched a few weeks back, one of the headline features was this sort of a portrait mode, but where you could sort of flex it after the fact. And I did a review uh, for the Beyond Devices blog where I um, compared the iPhone portrait mode with the Galaxy Note 8's portrait mode and spent a lot of time on it. They're very similar. And the reality is I've never really wanted to tweak the portrait mode on the iPhone. In, in testing it alongside the Note 8, I realize it's quite aggressive and there might be times when you want to tone it down a bit. But this portrait lighting feature is a very dramatic change, much more dramatic, I'd say, than actually the background uh, blur effect. Um, you know, a lot of very different effects that you can achieve and it's all there. Uh, it's all uh, tweakable after the fact. So you've got a, a picture that you've taken already you can go in and completely change the way it looks. Uh, with the light from a lighting perspective and that's very sophisticated and that leans on the sort of neural engine that's in the new uh, apple a11 bionic chip and so on and so you know some really interesting stuff there yeah no i think 
you're going to see that everywhere. Like we talked about, I don't remember how long ago this was, but we talked about how competitive smartphones could ever really be to SLR, digital SLR cameras because of the physics involved. And, and I mean, mm -hmm. you know, lenses can only get so small and perform the same as, you know, bigger lenses. Like they're, they're, right. they're, the light can only be bent in certain ways to get certain outcomes, no matter what kind of sensor is detecting the light. And that constraint, we talked about at the time, that constraint could only ever be overcome by software. It would have to be, it would have to, the effects would have to essentially be approximated by software rather than physically created in a camera. Mm -hmm. And this is another example of, of, of that happening. Portrait mode was that last year, and the the studio lighting thing is really really remarkable. Especially because mm -hmm. some of the some of the effects are pretty subtle, but 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 really nice looking. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. at least from all the demo stuff I saw online. And so, um, you know, this is there. The time is coming increasingly that you know nobody like 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 pocket cameras are kind of long gone. You know. I think the time is coming that digital SLRs are going to really only be used by professionals anymore. Because there was obviously there was a big shift where everybody started buying low-end digital SLRs. Um, I think that market is 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 next to be wiped out. So especially because you can do this without having to lug lighting equipment around with you, and that's right. that's yeah. remarkable. Yeah, no, it's huge. I'd be very curious to see how well it works in low lighting because that's a big limitation of portrait mode today is it, it doesn't work very well in low lighting at all um, and so I'm curious to see how the fact that there's optical image stabilization they've made other improvements in the ISP and so on you know whether that will really change that dramatically um, I think it's worth talking about wireless charging briefly uh, you know Apple often does its own thing as far as this kind of stuff is concerned and they, they did a little bit here and we can talk about that too but notably and there was some hints of this because they joined the consortium that manages the standard a while back um, and because it's Qi charging, is, that's the standard that's been used for the Apple Watch for some time now, uh, they're embracing an existing standard. And they explicitly talked on stage about the fact that Qi certified wireless charging mats will work with the iPhone 8 and 10 models. Um, and so as far as I can tell, Apple hasn't actually made its own charging pad. Um, there's certainly nothing about it on its website right now. There's a Mophie one that's being advertised, and they talked about a Belkin one. Uh, but they also said, you know, you should be able to use these devices with other charging pads that are out there already. And so um, that's a bit of a departure for Apple in that sense. You know, it's always had a very proprietary approach to charging in particular. And, and with this announcement, they're going to do things a bit differently. Yeah, I think this actually, so I'm going to dig back a little in the history. I think this actually is because of Bluetooth. I mean, if you go back to the original iPod connector, the 30-pin connector, Apple essentially built a gigantic hedge around its market because the made for i program was so powerful and it was really hard for anybody else to I mean, there were ipod compatible connectors everywhere you go to a hotel and there's a smart alarm clock next to it where you can stick in your ipod and charge it and then that carried over to the iphone and then they moved to lightning and it all was about protecting the ecosystem which apple is pretty aggressive about and has historically been really good at and then bluetooth comes along and I mean, it's been around forever, but it came along in a way that finally worked for audio and all kinds of other things. And it, and because it's a standard, it sort of lopped off, you know, a huge hedge that Apple, a huge part of the hedge that Apple had used in the past to protect its ecosystem. Um, with Bluetooth, uh, 
taking so much of the role of physical connectors, um, there's little reason to sort of hold out on on a proprietary charging standard anymore. Because Apple can't, because half of the half of the ecosystem protection is gone, and so um, it makes more sense to use a standard here that will dramatically improve the experience for everybody. And I think that, and I think this is exactly the right approach. I'm, I realize I'm kind of, I, I feel like I'm being very much in fanboy mode today, but I just think they've made a lot of good. De- I think they've made a lot of good decisions, yeah. and yeah. and I think adopting the cheese standard for for wireless charging is is a is is going to be awesome and it's going to it's going to be a tide that right that lifts all boats and you can expect all the android phones to jump on really quickly and and uh you know before long everybody will be charging their phones wirelessly just by setting them on a on an armrest at the airport and that's cool yeah and it's it's and you know the samsung phones and others out there already you know they're based on the same standard so it's those you know mats that have come out for those devices they're going to be usable for the iphone and so you know, the uh, Apple's been the holdout, frankly, from wireless charging in general, and to some extent from the Qi wireless standard as it comes uh, as it relates to smartphones. And so, the fact that they're getting on board now will move that standard forward. And clearly, there's been work going on even without Apple to deploy charging mats in various places. And they mentioned airports and restaurants and places like that. I think Starbucks had an initiative for a while, although I think they may have pulled back on that recently. Uh, but they talked about cars having them and so on. So this is. You know, clearly an attempt to benefit from the ecosystem that's already grown up around Qi, but it also means we get away from this sort of normal situation where if you want wireless charging, you'd have to pay for two what would probably be very high-priced accessories from Apple, you know, right. one for home, one for work, or possibly one for the car or something like that. And, you know, now you could go buy third-party ones that could be really cheap, potentially. Uh, you may already have some if you're switching from Samsung to iPhone. Um, and so, you know, I think, it's, I think it's a smart approach. And it means Apple doesn't have to be in the business of doing this. They don't have to give them away with their phones, which would be, you know, would cut into margins. Um, and they can still sell third-party stuff that's uh, specialized for iPhone. And then there's this whole sort of proprietary angle still where they're doing this sort of broader mat under the air power standard where you could put several devices, so an iPhone and a watch and AirPod case, all on a broader mat that could charge all three devices at the same time with this really nifty little user interface and that isn't coming till next year but you know it's an interesting uh sort of wrinkle on it where even though they're choosing a standard approach they're kind of saying what well, doesn't do everything we want it to do so we're still going to have our yeah. own little thing yeah i the not having to carry a cable with you and being able to charge it in public without having to bring a lightning cable with you is going to be a big deal i mean yeah. when i go to restaurants right now and i see you know little outlets that have usb plugs in them I just look at those and think, how many people carry uh, carry an, a, a lightning cable with them when they go out to eat? And it can't be that many. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But if I'm sitting at the restaurant and the charging mat is built into the table, yeah, I'll pull my phone out and put it on there because why not? Right. So yeah, it's going to be a big sure. deal. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see. Um, a couple of other things to talk about. I, I think one is just positioning. I and mean, we talked about this a little bit already. So iPhone 8 is being positioned as the next generation of iPhones. So a generational shift as opposed to just an S, which I think a lot of people interpret to mean it's a small incremental change. Apple doesn't necessarily see it that way, but that's been the reputation. So clear signal, this is a new generation. They're even saying that explicitly. But then you've got the iPhone 10, and because they're both using numbers, there's this very clear sort of uh, positioning that, that the 10 is better than the 8 and sort of more advanced in the future and all the rest of it. And so it raises the question of sort of which phone do people buy? Yeah. And what was fascinating was, you know, Apple's guidance in its last earnings was for fairly significant growth in the September quarter that ends in just a few weeks here uh, over last year's equivalent. 
And I said that basically guarantees they'll have iPhones shipping from day one, which they will, but they won't have all three. Um, they'll have the 8 and the 8 Plus shipping from day one, and it implies that they expect to sell considerably more of those than they did last year, which both assumes lots of demand and assumes they can make more of them, even though there's this change in hardware design to glass backs and all the rest of it, and wireless charging support, which is quite bold. Um, so either you know they're surprised that um, they weren't able to have the iPhone 10 in sufficient volumes, or more likely they knew this was going to be the case all along. They're just banking on sufficient supply of the iPhone 8. So I was a bit surprised by the fairly significant delay in when the iPhone 10 is going to ship, but it suggests they see significant demand. And it was funny, I was talking to a reporter after the event today, and he was kind of saying, well, which one would you buy? And I said, well, the 10, obviously. <laughs> you want the 10, that's the device you want. Um, and, I, and so it got me thinking, kind of, who would buy the 8 and the 8 Plus? You know, is it just about price? Is it about not wanting to pay the extra 10 to $15 a month? Uh, is it going to be an affordability thing? And is, are the 8 and the 8 Plus therefore going to get a reputation for, um, you know, being the, the phone for people who can't afford the, the very best phone? Um, you know, with the Plus and the sort of regular model for the last three years, there was a size difference. So some people just didn't want a really enormous phone. But the iPhone 10 is about the same size as the iPhone 7. Um, and so, um, you know, that's no longer a reason not to buy the 10. It's really just about price at this point. And then there's the reason sort of, I really need a new iPhone now. Mine broke. I've got to replace it. I can't wait till early November. Um, but it, yeah, it did make me wonder kind of who's going to buy the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus versus who's going to buy the 10 and what will be the proportions between them. I, I have no doubt they're going to sell far more 8s and 8 Pluses because of the price point and various other things and the availability in the near term. But I, I wonder how much share the iPhone 10 will take once it gets in adequate supply. Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think the... <clears throat> Another possible explanation to this is that Apple thinks there's going to be a lot more price sensitivity than a lot of the tech press has been predicting. I mean, if you look at if you look at the way people were talking about it on Twitter leading up to it, there you know there are a lot of jokes about I'm not going to spend a thousand dollars on the most important object in my life. You know, there's a lot of that going on. But mm -hmm. truth is, I, I think there are going to be a lot of people like that. I mean, just if you look, there are too many iPhone owners. Uh, for the tech press and sort of the techie geek kind of bubble and echo chamber to constitute that big of a chunk of mm -hmm. Apple's iPhone customers. There are a lot of people who are happy with an iPhone. And mm -hmm. and when you start looking at $1,000 or 1150 you know, because some people prefer the bigger storage capacity to mm -hmm. um, a 256 gigs. I, I just think there's a legitimate potential here that Apple has figured out that there's a higher price sensitivity than the tech press has been estimating or assuming. And that, mean, that means there are going to be a whole bunch of people who are going to look at the layout and look at the options of iPhones and they're going to say, I'm happy with an 8. This seems like a great phone. I can get it now. And it's also a lot mm -hmm. cheaper. And right. yeah, so we'll see. I mean, you got a lot of people for whom... You know, an iPhone is already expensive. A lot of college students, right. mm -hmm. you know, retirees, like these are a huge chunk of the customers for Apple. And mm -hmm. I think they're going to be a lot more price sensitive than people are are assuming right now. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've seen kind of the opposite thing. I've seen this $1,000 iPhone. Nobody's going to buy a $1,000 iPhone thing. And oh. so I've kind of pushed back <laughs> on that a little bit, which is to say nobody pays upfront for a device we pay in installments and leases and so this is really about another 10 15 dollars a month not about 
shelling out hundreds of dollars up front additional to what you would be paying otherwise. And so I've kind of pushed back the other way because most of the coverage I've seen, certainly most of the reporters I've talked to have been saying, is anybody going to buy a $1,000 iPhone? Um, but yeah, I, I think frankly, Apple, I'm sure they'd have some sense, but you know, we, they've misjudged mix before and you know, they don't really have a solid sense because until the details are out there today, nobody really knew what they would be getting for $1,000. So all the surveys out there, you can kind of throw them out the window and redo them now. Right because we actually know what that $1,000 gets you. We know what the alternative is at $700 and $800. Um, so yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch the sort of the mix once, uh, as I say, the iPhone X in adequate supply, probably early next year sometime. Um, you know, the reality is it's, it's going on pre-order at the end of October, starts shipping November 3rd, you know, assuming they ramp up fairly significantly from roughly 10,000 a day they're making today, according to Nietzsche <laughs> Quo. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they make a few million by then. Um, but, uh, you know, wouldn't be surprised if it's like the AirPods last year where, it, you know, some people get them for Christmas and some people have to wait. Um, and so, um, you know, it'll be very interesting to watch that mix, especially going into, you know, the first quarter of next calendar year. Yeah, there's a lot that's mysterious about this. Here's a, here's a canary in the coal mine of the mystery is where did the copper one go? I mean, if you you know, there are all these leaks of images of a mm. of a space gray or black or whatever, a silver one and a copper gold colored one, and that was not on stage or announced or anything. Like, where in the world did this you know third color go? That I think a lot of people were just taking as taking for granted that yeah, this is going to be part mm. of the product mix, and it it it, right. it disappeared. And I, you know, maybe this is a lot harder to make than uh, you know. Uh, then people are realizing. Right. So. Well, it's worth noting, you know, this past year there was the product red version of the iPhone that came out partway through the year. Yeah. So it's quite possible that for now they're just focusing on two models uh, for the iPhone 10. You know, I think it's three different colors you can get for the iPhone 8. Um, and, you know, they'll add other colors later in the year as they get the sort of basic component supply in place and they need to sort of diversify it to capture new markets and so Yeah, on. but all that points um, to... Uh, supply constraints being a motive. Yes, absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The only other thing that I, I mentioned quickly is just chips. And we've talked about the A11 Bionic a couple of times, but, you know, Apple doesn't generally like to talk a lot about technology. Um, the underlying technology, they tend to talk about what it enables. They tend to talk about the products and the features and what you can do with this stuff. And the technology is kind of secondary if it's mentioned at all. Uh, the event today went very fast. They kind of spewed a lot of information at us very quickly. They did, though, talk about chips quite a bit. We talked about the A11 Bionic, and certainly A chips have been a big focus for the last few years' events. But they talked about an Apple-designed GPU, and the significance of that's probably been overlooked by a lot of people who are not aware that Apple buys GPUs from a company called Imagination Technologies. And earlier this year, Imagination Technologies had to issue a profit warning because they were basically saying Apple said they don't need our stuff anymore from about a year and a half away. Um, and so we're already seeing Apple put its own uh, designed GPU, presumably still using some imagination tech technology, uh, into this phone. But, you know, that's a big step forward for them to completely design their own GPU. Uh, they've got a neural engine in there that's involved in a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. So there was a lot of focus on that. And it continues to be a huge source of differentiation. I mean, you talked in the context of competing against DSLRs about the role of software. But a lot of that stuff in turn is enabled by yeah. very powerful chips that are highly optimized and designed for exactly what Apple needs them to do, rather than the Android world, which basically buys off-the-shelf Qualcomm chips and has to you know, enable whatever features those enable and doesn't have a lot of choice about uh, developing their own stuff separate from that. 
Yeah, this, you know, we've talked before about how Apple's semiconductor prowess is such a distinctive advantage for them. Um, mm. I think when you when you consider that they're, they have their own GPU, I assume there's, and then the, the, the neural engine, but I assume there's heavy overlap in those because GPUs are used for neural uh, network right. computing. Um, the, but the point is they could design that for what they want, and there's a ton of machine learning and all these new features. You know, Face ID sort of learns your face as it changes over time, and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, they... Uh, um, Phil Schiller demoed that when you shoot video with these phones, it's actually tracking, you know, two million little squares, uh, you know, for details in that so that the video you get is optimized to look great. I mean, this is all machine learning stuff that requires that requires really robust and custom designed silicon, and they've got it. And mm -hmm. I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's an, it, it's, it's an advantage that would be really hard for anybody else in the market to to build up without the years-long investment that Apple's already made. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we had a previous episode where you talked us through some of the A-series chip stuff, so we'll point to that in the show notes, but absolutely continues to be a big source of differentiation for Apple. Well, we've just reached the hour mark, so I think we'll probably wrap up at that point. We've kind of reached the end of the announcements from today's event too. As I said at the beginning, we inevitably haven't covered every little detail, and there may be some things still coming out. We might cover some of those in the news roundup on Friday if there's any big new stuff that emerges from the coverage over the next couple of days. Um, but thanks very much for listening. As always, we'll have some details in the show notes um, for you to link to other stuff that we've talked about. Um, but we should be back later in the week with a news roundup episode to cover some of the rest of the week's news that doesn't relate to Apple. Um, and until then, thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye.